Hello everyone and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast where we share stories of inspiration, innovation, leadership and good business to create an abundant and sustainable ocean. In this episode, we sat down with Pete Saglinski from The Seabin Project. Now, unless you've been living under a rock for the last few years, you know about Seabin. These are those incredible innovations that suck in seawater from marinas and ports and take out the trash. We've got garbage bins all over our planet. Why don't we have them in the ocean? Pete is going to tell us all about this. In the conversation, he does mention a upcoming fundraiser. Seabin actually just finished and they raised $1,825,000 from people like you, the public, in their crowd equity fundraise. An incredible effort. So you are going to find more and more Seabins going in all around the world thanks to the wonderful support. I hope you enjoy this episode. Remember, if you like it, please share it, comment, write a review, and if you haven't got a question, send it our way. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Ocean Impact Podcast. Okay, mate, well, here we are. This is a um, pretty nice opportunity to get to have a chat with you about Seabin Project and all the work that you've been doing in recent years and so thank you so much for your time. Um, you know, I think we could probably safely say our relationship does go back a, a few years as, as allies in the fight against plastic pollution and I've got a heck of a lot of respect for you so um, really looking forward to this chat. Thanks mate, yeah, no, thanks for having me, it's a pretty awesome spot you got. Yeah, so we're at Manly Beach and uh, the ocean isn't doing a lot today so we thought we'd do a podcast instead. So um, on the subject of the ocean, um, just tell me a little bit about your relationship with the ocean, um, maybe even share some stories or anecdotes where the ocean has had that big impact on you in your life. Um, yes, yeah, I, I grew up up in northern New South Wales and uh, I guess when you grow up on the coast your parents are pretty worried about you if you, you know, you playing around the water and so you know you learn to swim pretty early <laughs> um, and uh, part of that was we joined nippers when we were maybe like I don't know seven or eight I think um, up until we were 18 you know within the surf club and because we lived um, a little bit off the coast up in Gooningary and then Mullum um, we used to stash our surfboards at the surf club there and you know ride like 12 kilometers to get to the beach surf all day and then ride home and um, yeah, it's pretty fun, you know, just sort of, and I, and I guess you don't really, you kind of get this respect for the ocean built into you or kind of forced on you when you start to see some more serious conditions. And um, But then I realised that we kind of take this for granted and we only realise how good we do have it here in Australia on the coast until you leave and then you go somewhere else and, and you see the conditions and the, um, you know, the less than ideal um, you know the amount of pollution that's in the water, or you know just the volumes. And when you come back, you're like, wow, you know, we've Australia, we've definitely got first world problems here. You know, so but um, but no, nah, the ocean's been a pretty big thing for me. Um, it uh, I don't know, it's not like a 
I don't go into the ocean consciously to try and cleanse myself or anything. I just go in there and have fun. And I guess the byproduct of that is getting, you know, you get a bit de-stressed or relaxed or something. And I definitely found that when you're sitting out there, maybe waiting for a wave or something, that's when you think the most. But as soon as you catch a wave, I guess you find a, a state of flow because you're so concentrated on trying not to cook it or fall off um, that you stop thinking about business or your stress or you know, any, any of the issues you're facing. And I found that as well with uh, a bit of free diving. Um, you know, when you're under the water and you're kind of, you're looking at other things that is just amazing and you forget about your daily troubles. So I guess, you know, the ocean really helps a lot and makes you feel good and keeps you positive. So. Yeah, it's also very destructive and quite challenging at times. Absolutely, I guess you've seen a lot of that through both surfing but also you've done quite a bit of sailing. Yeah, I'm like growing up in the Byron Shire, like we didn't have any marinas, we were just, you know, little surf rats and this, uh, you know, a bit of fishing and spearing and stuff. But when I first moved to Manly, you know, started building boats and I was really good at it, but I was never a sailor. And then, uh, you know, after I finished my um, career in industrial design, um, I, I people found out I was, you know, heading overseas, and I used to do a bit of boat building, and and I was really good at it. Um, I don't know how, but I was just like I was good with my hands, and and so I was never a proper sailor, but we'd do a lot of deliveries, and but you know, like surfing a, I don't know, like a six metre wave on a ninety foot yacht, doing like thirty two knots down the face of it is a pretty amazing thing. Certainly feel then, pretty humble, then, don't you? Then you get broadsided by another six metre wave and it's pretty hectic, yeah. Yeah, can't imagine the incredible power that that provides against the craft as well and then obviously therefore you're designed just thinking about how you can withstand this immense power of the ocean. Yeah, and it actually hits another factor of um, personal safety. Like, you're building these yachts that are designed to go like two and a half times the speed of wind and and then you have this factor of death. You know, these things are like just hooking along and they're so fragile, but high performance stuff. I mean, it's, it's pretty serious stuff. People would rather go faster than necessarily, you know, worry about their safety sometimes, I, I imagine. Right. Like look, at the, look at the dudes driving the Grand Prix, you know, the Formula Ones, like, oh my God. But, you know, they, they get their buzz from it, that's for sure. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that um, time in your life when you were doing your industrial design, product design. Were you fueled by environmental attitudes then? I've heard you talk a little bit about how some of those products you were creating in those early days had planned obsolescence and did that start to eat away at you at all? I've, I've never been an activist or a greenie or any of that sort of stuff. Like, I mean, we, I, I think naturally I have a, that in me of just conservation. And, like, my old man was a timber cutter but he was a selective logger. He would go in and take one log from here and then 600 metres away they would take another one and, you know, there was regeneration. And, and so we've never really been, like, you know, vocal in your face, frontline activists or anything. We still aren't really, but, um, but it's definitely, I guess, a respect for the environment that is ingrained, maybe within myself a little bit, um, that has kind of given me these values. And uh, when I was a... Um, industrial designer, like, it was great, man. I was designing all this cool stuff, and you know, like one day I was at the chemist in Byron, and I was thinking I was paying a post bill or something, and um, I had no shoes on, no shirt. I had sandal, I had me and zinc across my face, and just looked like a bit of a scumbag. And and there on the shelf was a baby toy that I designed, 
and I picked it up and I was like, this is like, a, this is a moment, like, this is cool. And the lady comes up, she's like, can I help you? Do you want to buy that? I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, it's cool. And she's like, oh, it's a really good one. I'm like, hey, I designed this. And she's looking at me and like, nah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, the, see these dots here? And it was a real challenge to do the overmolding and this and that. And uh, it was pretty cool, but um, I got a bit disillusioned because I tried to simplify everything in 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 my in that job as an industrial designer and everything else I've been trying to like keep things simple and and uh, unfortunately the management weren't that keen on it and uh, they they preferred a bit more complicated stuff and so we would overcomplicate designs and and it was a bit disheartening and then the other thing that was disheartening was like you get a client come in and he wanted to do this product that you really didn't need it you know it was like more of a whimsical sort of I don't know, it was a gimmick or something, and you're like, you don't need this, mate. And he's like, I want it. And then the boss would be like, you got to do it. And you're like, oh, man, like, this is just a, another shitty product that's going to be on the shelf for maybe six months and then ditched, and it's just, yeah. And so, um, yeah, I started to get a bit disillusioned, and I was a bit off it, and I don't know, I just sort of just quit and bailed overseas. <laughs> So we spoke a little bit about that just then, this time that you were, well, it was quite some time, wasn't it? 11, 12 years that you were in Europe and mostly in Italy in that time? Yeah, I'm, I'm 41 now, so it's all sort of a bit hazy all that period, but yeah, it's a while ago. <laughs> and so you're in Europe, you've, you know, sort of sounds like you've fallen on your feet with these jobs doing the boat building. It must have been a pretty exciting time. Tell us a little bit about that experience in your life. Yeah, well, I got, um, I was in Brazil and uh, I just got an email and then we jumped on a call and stuff and it was some mates that I'd, I'd done like a couple of years of just labouring up in Motorvale at McConaughey Boats and um, they're like, hey Pete, you know, we heard you got a visa for Italy and I'd got a visa because I was, had an interview with, um, I think it was Hitachi for industrial design and, and I was like, yeah, and they're like, come and work with us. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? Oh, we're building boats, mate, come over. And I'm like, oh, where are you? <laughs> You know, oh, we're in Italy working for America's Cup, and I was like, oh, wow, you know. And then um, you know, I just came in. They just needed an extra pair of hands. I didn't even know what I was doing. I just followed orders, you know, and um, do this, do that, so I'd do it. And um, had a bit of common sense and you know, you knew how to use power tools, so I had all my fingers and all my digits and that. It was all good. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, just one thing led to another. It kind of, like, snowballed into this career of uh, building high-performance racing yachts out of possibly the most toxic stuff you could imagine and um, like it was great like I was getting heaps of money and um, I was you know pretty carefree I'd roll around with like surfboard and a, and a you know backpack sort of thing and go from country to country and they'd pay me to go around the world and uh, I'd in my time off I'd just go for a wave and then when we're working we just head down and get stuck into it and it was a great experience and I got to visit like, I, I, I can't remember how many countries I've been to. I, I'd go around the world three times a year. Wow. I haven't paid for a flight. For, I didn't pay for a flight for 12 years. Wow. Or a hotel, you know, or a meal or anything. Like, it was all paid for and it was, you know, it was the cushiest job ever. And But I met my mate who, you know, became a business partner and I met him in China and then, we, you know, the racing circuit's kind of all the same and same people, all different teams. We all go everywhere and... Um, and then uh, we're in Miami and my team and um, we, we had just won the world championships in this regatta and uh, you know, the next morning he's t we're in the hotel off to the airport and he 
and Andrew's like, oh, I got this idea, and he told me. I was like, mate, this thing's a game changer. He's like, oh, I don't know what to do. You know, maybe I'm selling it at Bunnings for 50 bucks or something. And I was like, no, nah, man, like, this is, no, nah, this is next level. And he's like, I don't know what to do, mate. And I was like, well, I used to do that for a living. And, and that was my light bulb moment where I could, you know, personally tick off things that I've always wanted, which was, I've never helped anyone else in my career. I always made money for myself. Um, I'd sometimes help my family, but, but you know, it was all, I made my money, I spent it, I enjoyed it, but it was never have a career where you could help others or help the environment. So that was a big tick, tick, tick. And then uh, the other tick boxes were design, engineering, and getting to stay on the water and have a bit of fun and possibly shape a business model into something that I'd enjoy and hopefully other people would enjoy as well. Unreal. So here we are. So what year is this when you meet Andrew? Or we already shares the idea with you? Oh, uh, maybe, maybe like 2010, 2012 or 2013. So still very early days for the conversation about plastic pollution. Like what, what was it about? You said it was a game changer. Was that because you had an acute awareness about the problem or you just thought this innovation is incredible? Well, around that time, like on my Facebook feeds, um, this young dude kept popping up everywhere of it was boy and slut you know and and then the the whole story got sensationalized you know the, the floating islands it's the size of texas and there's you know all this type of thing and it wasn't actually accurate but the whole world took notice attention and that's what kind of got my attention like I, you know if you see rubbish on the street and you walk along and it just becomes normal and you know it was um I don't, I don't know, like, everywhere we went, you know, we saw it, but um, it didn't really kick home until the media sensationalised it and, uh, and and then millions of other people as well. And and so I guess that's when I kind of knew the game changer was there. We kind of knew it before, but then we realised, you know, that, oh, my God, you know, this is like an emerging blue economy. Um, it's something that's never really been done because the problem is new. You know, in the non-profit world, you guys have been chipping away for ages. But uh, I didn't know anything about it. I, I've never done anything non-profit. I kind of got thrown in a deep end with a viral video and, you know, just sort of, I don't know, lucked out. <laughs> so tell me about that. So you've got the innovation. You've obviously forged that relationship and said, we're going to do this. When did you know that crowdfunding was the way to go? And, and tell us a little bit about that experience with crowdfunding. <laughs> um, yeah, well, we got together and we probably spent two years just talking about it and, you know, like having a beer after work and having a bit of a tinker and then we'd get busy and all well, the surf would be good and I uh, never really got serious. But uh, I, I was in, in Italy again, actually in the same place, like probably 12 years later, in exactly the same factory. And, uh, you know, it was snowing on the hills, but in the valley where we were, it was just raining every day and it was horrible and depressing. And I kept thinking about the sea bin, I kept thinking about this and that. And I was like, you know what, like, I'm going to do this. And so I spent six months sort of quietly uh, squirrelling away my money and making a few plans. And, and then just getting this one day at work where I was like, I'd had enough. And I was like, hey, boys, I'm out. <laughs> they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm quitting. I'm like, why? I'm going to do C-Bin. They're like, you're an idiot, mate. <laughs> like, no, no, it's cool. I'm, I'm, I'm all over it. And they're like, oh, you know. And, uh, and then I literally quit, you know. And I, I'd saved up like 60 grand and um, went to the Mentorwise, went surfing for two weeks and then came back and found a place in Spain in the city we're living in and renovated it with a bunch of mates and 
um, we uh, you know bought the um, bought the domain name, uh, name registered the business, uh, found some expensive lawyers, and then all of a sudden my sixty grand was gone. It was like, well, we're broke. What are we going to do? And I'd heard about crowdfunding where if you had an idea, people gave you money, and you could either give them like gifts or thank yous, or you could give yeah, like it wasn't it was pretty awesome. And uh, so we started off on Kickstarter and. Um, uh, we raised like 20 grand I think in a week and then they kicked us off <laughs> um, because uh, we had a prototype and within the rules that the prototypes were okay it had to be a working prototype but um, like two weeks before we started there was this dude with a laser razor who'd raised four million dollars and it turned out it wasn't a laser it was just like a hot wire <laughs> and uh, it was really embarrassing for Kickstarter and so they like cracked down on everyone that had a prototype including us and uh, we were like, oh shit, you know, what do we do? So we, we saw that Laser Razor guy had gone to Indiegogo and done the same thing and raised like another two mil or something. So we we're like, well, let's do what he did. But, you know, at least ours works. <laughs> um, yeah. Everyone who you know, should know that crowdfunding is incredibly hard. So you'd obviously put a lot of energy into the Kickstarter to make it work, or yeah, was it? Yeah, so- I was gutted, man. I like, you know, we raised twenty grand, and, and you're on your uh, way. Yeah, and there was like. How do we even, they kicked us off. We couldn't even talk to the people to say, hey, come to Indiegogo. And uh, so we had to start from scratch and we had four and a half weeks. And um, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life because for the first three weeks, you got all these um, environmental agencies on the internet squealing about a problem of ocean plastics. And then the next thing they're squealing about is we need a solution. And there I was in my factory with an iPod, uh, with my phone, an iPad, and my laptop, like an octopus, working on all three devices to speak to all of them, saying, hey, we've got a solution. And uh, we, we got blocked by everyone. We got ignored. Um, I actually, like, they they literally told me, like, stop messaging us. And uh, I was really disheartened. I was like, you know, what a bunch of tools. And, uh, and then uh, somebody replied to me saying, hey, look, you guys are a conflict of interest. You know, if, 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 if we uh, advertise what you do, then the people that donate money to us will donate it to you and so we don't get anything, so we're sorry, mate, you know? And I was like, well, I'm not even asking for money. I just want you to share or give it a like or give it a mention. And, uh, but it was this massive conflict of interest and that was my first foray into the competitive and very political not-for-profit world which I was pretty disappointed about and uh, that was one of the things where I was like if we ever have a not-for-profit we're going to be the cool one you know we're going to share our toys and share the data and bring other people in and just be good people you know and um, but then we struggled for like three weeks I'd raise maybe 50 grand or so um, and uh, we needed to raise 150,000 euros and I'd raised 50,000 euros. And, uh, but then one night, um, and I was doing like maybe 20 hour days every day, like it was pretty hectic trying to get traction. And, uh, and then one day, like this French blog guy, um, he reposted on his blog and, and he got 11,000 views on our video. So I was really strategic with our video. And the only way you could see the video was if you went to Indiegogo and clicked on that video. You, we didn't put it on YouTube, we didn't put it on Facebook. I did all these sneaky... You wanted the traffic to go Yeah, down. we just had to funnel people to the thing because I was like, I'm lazy. <laughs> so 
So if I see that video on Facebook, I'm not going to on-click, you know, it's too hard, it's like three clicks, now nah, yeah. I'm over it. And so I got really sneaky and I did a screenshot of the video, used Photoshop to put that play button on it, but it was actually a hot link that would like sneak you to the Indiegogo page and, and it did it. And, um, and this dude, this French guy, like, he shared the um, the video, uh, the link, sorry, to the video, and it just went viral. Like, well, 11,000 views wasn't viral, but then it turned into 11 million views, and then 17 million views, and um, and then I realised how the media works, which was not many big news outlets take a punt on something new unless someone else has, and so it had this snowball effect as well. And so all of a sudden you got Bored Panda, Huffington Post, news. Um, was it um, now this um, all the major news channels that had 12 million followers or 4 million and they just went nuts on it they and put their little watermark on it you know? yeah we had people ripping off our video like just sort of re reworking it into their own initiative type thing with but their by own that logo stage, on I guess it you and... had enough momentum that you weren't so concerned about it well we didn't care man because like people eyeballs. were looking at our stuff you know they were looking at our logo as much as you know, Mr. David Avocado Wolf or someone else that you know ripped it and sort of kind of claimed it a little bit <laughs> but he helped it as well you know like it was good and and then uh, you uh, what was it yeah YouTube um, one of the sales people sent me an email saying hey Pete you know your video has gone viral and um, and by then we'd kind of it had gone someone had ripped it and then we decided to share it and stuff and and uh, YouTube are like, hey, you can monetize your video views because you're getting millions and millions of views. And we're like, oh, cool, that sounds great. You know, we've got hardly any money and we just, you know, we need to get this going. And and then uh, they sent me the document. It was quite a large you know, legal document and, and I had to read through and, and it was um, pretty much like anyone that uses that video, they're going to approach and with a cease and desist or, you know, you got to pay six bucks or you can't use your video. And I was thinking... Fuck that! Like, there's schools, there's kids, there's you know really good people out there that are using this video and sharing it. I'm not going to charge them money for it, you know. Like, let them go, and we just anyone that wanted to share it, we're like, yeah, go for it, mate. You know, and we set up a Vimeo where you could download the video, you could put it on your own channel, you could share it, and there are all these marketing people like, mate, you got to control your shit, you know, you got to do this and that. We're like, we don't care, mate. Like, this is for the better, you know. This is like. It's giving us a lot of credibility and people are seeing it. Like, we don't mind. And it, like, you know, 1.3 billion views later, you know, this accidental viral video happened. Um, but then, um, so after the, after the, um, after this French, French blog dude shared it, um, we started making like 20 grand a day, maybe 30 grand, 36 grand sort of thing. And, um, in the last sort of two weeks or week and a half, but it was about two weeks, we, we actually hit our target. But Which was? Um, it was 150,000 euros, but we oversubscribed and it went to like 160, I think. And then the euro, the, the currency conversion was insane because that translated into $362,000. Australian. Aussie. Aussie. Yeah, which was just like amazing. And... Uh, but it screwed me up, man. Like, I I was doing, like, 20-hour days, 23-hour days sometimes towards the end. Um, I was like a zombie that only left my factory to go and, like, buy food. And uh, and uh, I I didn't drink coffee for three years. 
because it gave me this new thing called anxiety that I'd never known before. I'd never ever been depressed or had anxiety or any of this sort of stuff. And I was like, what are all these emotions? Why do I feel like the world's falling on me? And why do I feel like a failure? And why am I, why am I actually doubting myself? And, and it was the anxiety and stress caused by this crowdfunding that I realized I couldn't drink coffee because it like doubled everything. And, and it was like, yeah, for three years, like screwed me up. I think that's really important. Maybe we, you know, we, we let you open up on that a little bit more because crowdfunding is obviously such a powerful tool and you're about to do it again in a different way. But tell us and maybe <laughs> tell the listeners, like, what, what can you understand about crowdfunding? What are its strengths and what are you got to be really concerned about when you're thinking of it? I guess when you're crowdfunding, you know, you're opening yourself up to the public and there's a lot of trolls and critics out there and you know, they really tear people down. Um, and it's hectic, like we got so many trolls that were like, you know, CBNs are a sham and this is all a con and you guys suck and you know, the CBNs are too small, you'll never make a difference, just give up now and all this sort of shit. We're like, who are these people, you know, like what gives you the authority, why, they, yeah, why, why are you even hating on world? us? Like, <laughs> you know, we're trying to do something that has these, you know, knock-on effects that are positive. Okay, what do you do, mate? You know, like, and but anyway, the, you know, they're online trolls, and they really tear you down. And anyone that tries to do anything good, people have like suspicions about like automatic human behaviours, like oh, what's he hiding or what's he doing. And I don't know. Like the biggest thing was stay positive, work your butt off, and stay positive again, um, and just be as open and honest and transparent as you can. Because if you're trying to hide anything, or if you're trying to like. If your idea is good but not great and you're telling people it's great, people will be like, no, nah, mate, you know, it's only average or it's good. You know, the internet's so so harsh, man. You know, they people troll you, they, they research you, they, they make up their own shit about you anyway. <laughs> and uh, you, you can't hide anything, I don't think. So authentic, tell a positive story. Like, we never showed any dead animals or fish cut open or dead whales and stuff because personally I didn't like it it was like made me feel bad and and when I started this I reached out to Flowhive on a Facebook message and I was like hey Cedar what, what's your secret mate you just made 12 mil you know crowdfunding and he goes make people feel good about themselves and stay positive I was like okay and I was like how the hell are we going to do this when we clean up the shittiest stuff in the water and um, you know what we do is disgusting and I was like oh hang on the outcome of pulling all that shit out of the water is it's cleaner or it will be cleaner and you know every little bit counts and I was like well let's focus on the cleaner oceans let's focus on the outcome which is you know positive stuff and let's just not show dead shit and uh, you know let's make people feel good about themselves and so that was a really big thing for us um, and uh, yeah I, I don't know just um, definitely visual communication works um, well, for me, like, I, I swear I'm, like, a bit dyslexic or something. And, like, I mentioned last night that spreadsheets just hurt my brain. <laughs> doesn't work properly. Um, and uh, I can do it, but, it, you know, it's a struggle. But visual learning for me is, like, a huge thing and visual communication. And, and so, like, we didn't have money to buy, like, have photographers and that. So we just bought, like, an average camera and tried to get good at it by copying what other people did. And and it's started to pay off and uh, yeah iMovie is such an amazing yet simple and basic movie editing tool like I made our pitch video on iMovie 
Um, so the tools are out there if you want to do this. You've really got no barriers to getting out there and no, no, like I'd, and and another thing was that uh, I, I didn't know how to do anything. I didn't even know. Mar- I don't still don't know marketing or anything. But uh, YouTube, Google, asking questions, asking stupid questions, and putting your hand up whenever you don't know anything um, has literally got me to here. Which yeah, it's we're not like massive or anything, but we're sort of you know on the on the way on the journey. Um, but yeah, just really upskilling yourself. And and the biggest thing I think to the to any of you know this smaller I don't know we haven't we're not successful yet but we're getting a bit of traction is um, identifying your weaknesses and then finding a solution for it so my weakness was business <laughs> when I was start I was trying to start a business and my weakness was the same thing and so I found the business people to jump in and help me um, and so yeah that that's a few things I guess I learned through trial and error um, I'm definitely not like a professional or anything it's just learning from my experience of what worked and what didn't awesome i'm conscious you're copping a bit of sun there do you want me to move the umbrella across more into the middle or you deal nah, okay? that's all right let's just smash this out all right mate gonna, um, oh yeah right all good no i've got, got a couple of things to do in a minute cool okay so a couple of numbers there on the crowdfunding raise. So you mentioned before somewhere around 1.3 billion views on the viral video. 7,336 people ended up contributing to make that 360-odd thousand Australian dollars. So then you go into two years of development. This is about 2016, correct? You go yes, into two years so, of development. So on the 30th... No, on the 28th of December in 2015, um, my computer mouse broke. For because uh, I, I I had a uh, a laptop for the 3D design and engineering, and then I had a laptop for other stuff, and then all the other devices. But I needed a mouse to do the design and engineering, and I was still designing the C bin, and uh, my mouse broke, and so I went to go and buy one, and it was like you know, no no funds or something was the message on that little thing that you press. And I was like oh, shit, what's going on here? And I went to the bank and I went to pull some money out, and it said like you got like minus twelve dollars. <laughs> And uh, yeah, and then uh, it was actually the 30, 30th of December, I remember that. And, um, and I was like, fuck, I'm out of money. Like, I'm literally got minus $12 in my life. <laughs> and uh, so I went to my van and I went through all my clothes and my pockets and, you know, under the seat of the couch and stuff like that. And, and I found like, uh, I think it was like $18 or something. And uh, I went and bought like a um, I think it was like a $10 computer mouse, like the cheapest one I could find that worked. And then I bought like an $8 bottle of wine. And, uh, <laughs> you know, 24 hours later, we were successful. Our, our crowdfunding finished on the 1st of, what, yeah, the 31st of December. And so on the 1st of January 2016, we had, you know, this, this funds available. And, um, yeah, and then we went into a, um, in the video, it was like, look, guys, you know, if we're doing this to raise money to make the prototypes and develop the commercial stuff and and so we had 18 months of doing that um, and uh, yeah after 18 months we had a product and then uh, I didn't really want to reinvent myself too many times so we found a, a company that were based in France that built marinas had a sales and distribution network in the marina industry and they were 
They weren't struggling, like they were pretty successful, but they were definitely had roadblocks where they couldn't get into competition marinas. Um, so, you know, one brand of marinas locked up that market and this brand was over here and they were trying to like, you know, take over regions and stuff. And, and so we partnered up with them and gave them exclusivity agreement and their objective was to get into marinas they couldn't using the sea bins as the, you know, the getting in the front door sort of thing. And, and it worked like, you know, together we scaled from six countries that they already had into 52 countries in 18 months. And uh, it, it was pretty. It was pretty amazing. Awesome. So yeah. So the numbers now in 2020: 860 sea bins, 52 countries. And now we get down to the stuff that I just get so fired up about. So, is it um, you know 600,000 liters of water being filtered each day, each unit, and that adds up to what 500 million yeah. liters of water being filtered every day? Yeah, it's mental. Um, so each sea bin is powered by an electrical. Um, water pump it's a submersible water pump um, for us like studying the ocean was just no it wasn't gonna work you know it's like you got ocean storms you got shipping you got hundred foot waves you got beautiful conditions but it's just so volatile and we're like well bugger that you know let's let's just we haven't got that much money we had you know 360 K is a lot of money but it's actually insignificant in the bigger picture of what we're trying to do and uh, so we started in ports, marinas and yacht clubs and, and what that meant was we had staff that would look after the sea bins and we could plug it into electricity because you know, the, the tech's not magic, like it needs to be powered by something. Um, and, uh, and so we did that and, and the pumps filtered 25,000 litres of water an hour. And so over a 24 hour period it's 600,000 uh, litres per day, per unit. And then, you know, times that by 860, and that's when you get 500 million litres of water being filtered every day um, for microplastics, plastic fibres, oil, you know, big stuff and that. And that's, that's a pretty insane number. <laughs> like, it really is. And then, the, you know, to run the, to run the pump, well, to run the sea bin, it, Australian is $4.40 to, uh, per day of electricity. But, you know, that's four bucks of electricity that is going to pulling the shit out of the water. It's not, you know, you're not running a PlayStation off it or, you know, just watching the telly or something. It's, you know, it's really positive stuff. And the thing for me, obviously those numbers are so real. And is it in terms of the amount of, uh, you know, heavy pollutants, the, the actual trash we could call it each day, is it about 3,600? How much is it each day that you think you're collecting with this current fleet of... Yeah, so the... Um, it, it's an estimate, it's approximate. Yeah. It's 3.6 tonnes per day. Yeah. And the way we worked that out was uh, we, we've been collecting data for like four years now um, of what each sea bin collects. And we know that the average is 3.9 kilograms per day of, of marine litter. And that could be like leaves and plastic. It can be just plastics or it could be all leaves. But it definitely varies uh, from location to location. But it's 3.9 uh, yeah, kilos of marine litter and so the marine litter is everything you know it's all mixed up and um, some locations don't get anything on a day and another location will get 120 kilos and it just depends on the weather condition whether it's flooded how many people live in the area waste services and all this but the global average is 3.9 and so over the course of a year it's 1.4 tons of marine litter that each unit will collect and then we use that rule of thumb uh, and apply it to 860 units and man, it starts to add up. Totally, totally. 
Um, and what I was trying to get out there is that obviously those numbers are profound, but it's the inspiration, I think, which is the other side of the story, right? You've got a physical object there, which is mitigating and removing a problem, but the people, the people that supported you in the crowd, the people that are out there now crowdfunding to put these units in their local area and how this is spreading around the world to inspire and educate. Yeah, that was astounding, something we could never have anticipated. Um, and, and I guess it was through like the successful work from you guys and other non-profits of you know, getting that awareness because people are becoming aware. And you know, when you got a kid telling you about like a plastic straw and some statistics and stuff like that's, you know, that kid might be like ten years old. You're like, holy shit! Like, people know the problem, and uh, and so. But what we found was that people were getting really frustrated because, yeah, you know, they're doing their personal steps to reducing plastic in their lives, uh, refusing plastic items, but they still see that crap in the water, and they're getting frustrated, and they're like, well, where's a, you know, where's a a more of a tangible solution or where is a physical solution that is going to pull it out because you know we're doing our part and but it takes time and I guess we all get impatient and uh, people just wanted to see um, physical things happening and getting pulled out and then we were really um, I guess lucky because we started upstream where we could use the sea bin as as like part of a solution and the real solution is the education in our opinion because we shouldn't have this shit in the water anyway. Like, plastics can be reused and, you know, it shouldn't be thrown away and it shouldn't be in the ocean. So we shouldn't even have sea bins. Um, but, um, but the best thing about the sea bin was that it was visible and we could use it for the prevention and awareness and create educational and science programs based on this rubbish bin slash pool skimmer that was put in the water. and. And it was something we could bring schools down to and, and people could learn about it and they could physically see it being collected and they could also see it when it came out. And um, just, I don't know, like we got really lucky, I think. The timing was just amazing. i got to say this though, that we knew that the Ocean Cleanup were launching on like oh, February or March or something in 2016. And so we got quite strategic and we're like, well, we have to launch on the 1st of January and we have to beat them to the punch. like. That was my first like strategic little objective, and I haven't actually told Boy on that. So if you're listening, <laughs> I like it. Let's talk a little bit about business. Um, I've heard you sort of describe how you know, Seabin Project, um, the for-profit, is that sort of reactive. It's getting in there and mitigating a problem, but then you've also got the foundation, which is sort of proactive, which focuses on the education. So tell me a little bit about the business structure and how you came to these conclusions and, and where it's going next. Yeah, I've got to admit, like, we weren't strategic. We didn't actually know what we were doing. We just kind of felt it was the right thing to do. And uh, I, it was um, a bit self-indulgent because I didn't want to be a hypocrite. You know, I'll be branded one as well. And, and so, um, you know, it was out of self-interest that this all started, um, which isn't a bad thing, I guess. Uh, but um, so when the vo uh, video went viral, everyone was like, sick, sea bins are in the water, we can throw our shit in the water and the sea bins will collect it, everything's going to be cool, you know, and we're like, no, like, the sea bins are here because you're throwing your crap in the water or maybe you're not, and, you know, there's leaking in and, uh, and the message was wrong in a lot of places throughout the internet, but people were like, you know, rejoicing, sea bins are going to save the world. 
uh, the media was saying that Seabin's going to save the world. And we're like, no, no, they're not. <laughs> the only thing that's going to save the world is ourselves, you know, stop being idiots. And so um, we, we had the power of that viral video. We had the power of communication because people started to benchmark us because they saw us on a video on the, on the internet. And, you know, if you're on Facebook, it must be official and that sort of shit. And uh, so we decided that we were going to use the power of communication to tell the right story, uh, which was education is, is the solution and the tech's only one little part of it. And, um, and that's kind of how we embarked on it. And the other one was um, reading that book, The Let My People Go Surfing by Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia. And when I read his book, like, I could only read half of it because I didn't understand the back half about the business stuff, but I just knew that this guy was successful. He did a really good and environmentally conscious product that they put a lot of time and effort into, and they also invested in the environment, and that's where we saw the words put together of um, for-profit conservation. And so when we started this, we had a choice to be for-profit or not-for-profit. And um, the reason we chose for-profit was again a bit of self-interest because I don't own a home, and I want to buy a you know I want to buy a block of land or something and have a house and support my children and and put food on the table. And I, I actually more wanted financial independence to make our own decisions and you know set our own destiny. And I didn't really want to beg people to give us money. And so we're like, let's do this properly and we'll make money. You know, we are for profit. We make money. It's not bad to make money. And then we'll use part of that to focus on education and funnel that thing back into not-for-profit. And and we didn't have an income and we were still doing that. And it was, we didn't actually have an accountant. That's why we did it. Because <laughs> if we had an accountant, it'd be like, you're an idiot, mate. Like, keep your money and spend it on a lawyer or, you know, this other shit. And uh, we, just, we, just, oh, we just went for it, um, which then created a community of people that supported us. They supported the not-for-profit activities. They loved the education. They loved their kids being involved. And, and then all of a sudden we had these like tens of thousands of people lobbying local councils to buy the sea bins, which is, you know, creates the revenue that we need to stay alive. And so it was just this real accidental sort of business model of investing in not-for-profit to then turn the wheels of the for-profit, which invests in the not-for-profit. and. Just that circle keeps going and essentially the Patagonia guys kind of started all that and yeah I don't know we've just sort of seen what they did and tried to do as best we could the same I love if it any, if that's... anyone else wants to do it go and read that book um, let my people go surfing and then read the next one which is um, you know tools for grassroots tools for activists yeah. and then apply that to your business model and yeah it's all mapped out like it's all there if you need it yeah, and it's honestly what's going to be a big focus for Ocean Impact Organisation is instilling that because having spent a decade in that not-for-profit space and in that traditional environmental action activism, there's this terrible narrative around that you can't do good and make money. And that, to me, it's no wonder we're still in this predicament if we continue to let that attitude um, prosper. Yeah, but that doesn't even make sense anyway. Like the same person that says you're making money and you're not doing good, like they make money. Like unless you're living under a rock or in a cave or something and not have anything attached to money, like everyone, money makes the world go around. 
you know, it's just what you choose to do with it. And if you're a greedy pig or if you want to do good or social good, like, and we didn't want to be greedy pigs, so, you know, let's just put it to good and, and we, you know, I, I benefit from it. Like, it's less shit in the water and my kids will benefit from it and you and the animals and everyone. Like, you know, money makes things happen. And now uh, everyone has an opportunity very soon to own a, a little chunk of CBN. So let's talk about where you're at now with the equity crowdfunding campaign and what you hope to achieve through this process. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'd heard about uh, equity crowdfunding and I never really gave it much attention because it sounded like a bit, you know, a bit, bit too maybe far-fetched or something. Or I don't know, I'd, I wasn't sure if I wanted, like, thousands of people to get involved, but then... Uh, just through decision making and you know maybe people didn't share our values and they wanted to reshape us or to be what they wanted us to be and um, and then what happened was we had quite a few pretty substantial offers of investment uh, for it was a lot of money some of the people were sort of you know talking to us about and some people wanted to buy the business and other people wanted majority and and then other people wanted this and that and and uh, the kind of they weren't the right people, they weren't the right fit. Some of them were really nice people, but um, maybe a bit more, I don't know, conservative or traditional because we were you know, investing in not-for-profit things. <laughs> you know, probably doesn't sit well with some people. Um, and another reason why we were very politely, you know, it's like, oh, thanks, but no thanks. And, you know, we kind of explored a few things a bit further just to see what we were worth, you know? Like, it's quite flattering when someone offers you, like, you know, quite a lot of figures to buy a business or something that you're just, I don't know, like, you're just in the trenches, man, like, and then someone's putting a value on it, you're like, oh, cool. <laughs> and uh, so we, but the biggest driver for, like, you know, kind of politely declining was that we hadn't sold that many products yet because we only just started. So in the first 18 months, you know, we sold 800, and, or 20 months, sorry, we'd be like 860 units, but... Yeah, we were getting offers before we'd even started the commercial sales and we we're like well, we don't even know what we're worth you know maybe we're worth like this much now but what are we worth in one year and so and another thing was like we just wanted to see if we could do it like give it a good hard go you know like and uh and so we said well let's do one year of sales and let's see what happens and then after that year let's you know reevaluate our situation and and in that you know the first year and a half that it you know as a startup everything drags out over a timeline and um, you know we did pretty well and and so that gave us a valuation of what we you know physically and tangibly could you know work off it's not like we didn't take any made, made up numbers of you know brand marketing or this and that brand value where you just make shit up and you know hopefully it applies and no one asks too many questions and stuff and you know, we've got like a you know a spreadsheet of a sales sheet and then we use the projections off that. And so, and then we realized that um, community drives our business model. And when we did the crowdfunding, we handed out stickers and hats and stuff and, and thank yous. And, and I was like, I went to Dave, the uh, business partner, CFO, you know, the finance guy, he's like, he levels me out. <laughs> you know, I get the crazy ideas and he's like, mate, rah, rah, rah. And, uh, and he's like, nah, not gonna do it nah 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 and I was like nah mate this is great you know the 
last time we gave out stickers and hats, this time we can give out equity and we can have people financially vested, you know, financially incentivized. They can join our mission, you know, they can, you know, they can really have that little bit of purpose, you know, by buying into something that is really for good. And he's like, nah, nah, nah. And then for 10 months or more, I've been pushing him and then he, he come around and then we partnered up with Birchall and uh, crowdfunding platform, equity crowdfunding. And and uh, we set the goal that we're going to raise three mil with a minimum raise of one mil. And um, and when we we're launched, we're in the last like week of our expressions of interest campaign. And, um, you know, already we've got like nearly nearly 1,700 investors that have signed up. And these are people that are like sophisticated, you know, I don't know, like central CBD investor types. And then you got 18 year olds that have never done anything like this before in their life, but they want to have something with more purpose. And then you got grandparents who have a little bit of money and they want to sort of you know, invest in something that can help their grandkids. And the way we did it was we set the minimum investment at 250 bucks so that it's, you know, affordable for a lot of people. And, and it's, and if everything goes to shit, like if this thing goes belly up, if you lose 250 bucks, you know, it's not, it's not the end of the world. You're not going to lose the house or hopefully you don't. And, um, you know, it was, let's keep it affordable and let's be very strategic and get, you know, a lot of people involved so that we can get more voices when we try to lobby the local government or the mayor or a member of parliament or state or federal government. The more voices, you know, the more attention uh, gets paid. So that's, so, that's the kind of idea. <laughs> love it. So hit me with the dates and obviously acknowledging that when people listen to this um, podcast, it may have closed by then. And so what... What sort of next for people that are interested in, in, in having a, a share of the equity of, of CBIN? Yeah, it's pretty simple. If you if you go to our website, there's links. Uh, so if you go to cbinproject.com, uh, there's links that will take you to the virtual page where and we have our platform. How long is that platform. open for? The dates it'll be open for? Oh, yeah. Sorry, mate. Um, so the live offer uh, it, uh, comes on the 13th of February. Yep. And then on the 20th of February, we make that fully public and we start to market it. Yep. And then on the 19th of March, the offer closes, okay. um, whether we're successful or not. You know, it's like... And so if it's pre-19 March, you've still got a chance to get involved, but you, do you foresee that this will be the start of potential offerings in the future or you really just don't know yet? What are your hopes and expectations for taking this journey yeah, of well, crowd equity? You know, I was mentioned before that Dave was like pretty hesitant and pretty like against all this. And he's really just, he's gone the other way, like full extreme, like <laughs> full backflip. And then he starts like, um, you know, he's on the phone, Pete, Pete, you know, we're getting a lot of traction. We got like 1,600 people registered and, and this is a really good experience or a sounding board for future, uh, future raises. And then he starts talking about an IPO, um, you know, and, and properly going public on a stock exchange and just taking it next level. You know, we're trying to raise three mil this time and yeah, I hope we're, I really hope we're successful and, and if we can do it this time then maybe we can go you know 10x in three years or something or so yeah absolutely I mean we got we got big plans you know there's 192 countries that have issues with the pollution and you know, we operate in 52 but it's still an early adopter phase and 
it's going to take a lot of money and a lot of resource and a lot of smart people and a lot of support from the community to you know to start really making a bigger impact so yeah that's it there's um a great deal of water courses and waterways in the world that can utilize this um you just got to think about how many bins you encounter in public let alone how many stormwater outlets let alone how many points i mean the scaling up of this operation is mental so sort of where to next mate um, i know there's some new versions of the bin in in sort of ideation and production so talk to me a little bit about where next as we start to come to the end of this great conversation yeah uh, the next steps um well, we're off to the city tonight for the patagonia the last patagonia store in um, sydney here and we do the expression of interest event um, and then uh yeah we've signed up with an uh, australian um, design engineering and production company called evolve they're based up in brisbane and we've signed the contract with those guys to create the next technology for us, uh, the CBN 6.0. And uh, we're pretty bloody excited about that because um, they're a really smart group. They're really nice guys and they're really, really good at their jobs. And we can be cost competitive producing something in Australia to China or a few other of the more traditional places of manufacturing. and. Um, but the best thing is that, you know, we've been working with the boys over at Boreo in California who um, specialise in recycling uh, used fishing nets. And so we're going to be introducing the fishing nets into the production of the sea bins, phasing out virgin plastics and then essentially kind of, I don't know, start closing a loop on, on plastics, I guess. You know, we're catching it. And uh, the next step is to start reusing what we already have. Um, yeah, so uh, a <laughs> few things on the go. <laughs> so the more successful you are, the more you can just keep to innovate and iterate and just constantly improve the design, functionality, the op opportunities of where to put C-bins. Yeah, well, for us, you know, this, this we, we think it's going to be a pretty successful, you know, gig and, and the mission is good, you know, and, and if we are successful, it means that we can invest back into the company, scale up the technology, optimise it, add the sensors, add, the opt uh, add, add some optical monitoring and you know, just get smarter. And, but all that takes money and so you know, as, as we grow and as the revenue comes in, we can reinvest that back into the company to make more of a positive impact. You know, I don't need three houses or two, I just want one. <laughs> you know, I've got two kids under two and uh, I really want to support them. and. You know, give them, give them all that I can. So, you know, reinvesting in the company and reinvesting in in the team, and you know, reinvesting in the environment and education is is our top priority. I love it, and obviously, you know, obviously everyone is encouraged to go and die, dig deep into CBM. But the work that you're doing on on data and, and turning this technology into smart, connected technology to get that rapid information. All of that stuff, incorporating the circularity, like everything about what these guys are doing is just heading in the absolute best direction. So we're at the end now. Um, I'm going to bundle up these last sort of few questions I had here. So a chance for any last words, but I really wanted to sort of touch on these two. In like, what would you say to people out there who are a bit like you? This this podcast is for people. A lot of them <laughs> passionate about the oceans, but also. The, the entrepreneurs and the innovators and the, the founders out there and maybe you could blend that in a little bit of like sort of what would you do differently so I don't know if you want to bundle those together 
Yeah, I'll, if anyone's like me, I slightly feel sorry for you. <laughs> um, you know, I, I wouldn't do anything different because if I did, I probably wouldn't be sitting here with you having this chat and we wouldn't be where we are. You know, everyone's here for a reason and you know, where you are in your life is where you should be, is, is my opinion. So I wouldn't do anything wrong, um, uh, anything different. But, you know, because every time we failed, we learnt something. And if we didn't learn something, it's because we were ignorant or we were lazy and we didn't try to find out what the solution was of why we failed. And so, you know, we, we failed and we failed fast and then uh, we learnt from it. And so that was a really, as, as a shitty experience as it was, it was a really positive one. Um, but if, if I had to give out like any hints and tips to anyone, um, if you have a, even if you have an average idea and you can do an amazing job at it, go for it. If you have an amazing idea, go for it as well. You, know, you could be doing the same thing, but you just do it better than someone else. You know, just do it, go for it. And uh, if you're gonna quit your job, you know, if you've if you got a salary coming in and you're gonna quit your job to do this little dream, save your money and make a plan. Because if you don't save your money or make a plan and you quit your job to follow your dream, you're gonna run out of money and then three weeks later you'd be asking for your job back and then you're not following your dream. And uh, yeah, so um, I don't know, like yeah, make a plan and start saving your money and, and then uh, look into the crowdfunding, look at community support. And I think Richard Branson said this, he's like, if when, he, when someone comes to him for an investment, he always asks himself, is this for the good of the planet or is this for the good of someone else? You know, or is this just a little gimmick or a toy that some dude wants to make that, you know, is not really necessary? And I mean, you don't have to do that, but if you do something that's good for the planet or for someone else or enables a better value of life, like, it's gonna be a lot better. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a bigger chance of success and, uh, and ask stupid questions. Like, they ask, sometimes they ask stupid questions, but you start to learn, like, so many times I've been in a room with like all these business people and they're like using these business terminology and I'm like, oh man, like what does that word mean? And I'll be like, excuse me, <laughs> uh, you just said this word, like what do you, what, what does it actually mean? And then they'll be like, okay, they stop, you know, say, explain it and I'll be writing shit down or sometimes I'm too scared to ask the question so I'll be Googling under the table. <laughs> And uh, yeah, just you know, ask questions and just try and be as true and authentic as you can, and and as transparent as you can. And I, I think that you know, if you're true to yourself, like you got nothing to hide. And and even if you do fail, you've given it a good hard go, and you know, a fair go. So I don't know, that's a few things. But <laughs> mate, I'm um, I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Um, you know, you've. You've definitely been an inspirational figure for so many years, but I think getting to spend this time with you and, and dig that little bit deeper, um, it just elevates the, the respect I have for you. So congratulations on everything you've achieved to date and on your next um, next adventures. I'll, I'll leave it over to you to say last words and, and, and a call to action for anyone listening if they want to learn more or get involved with Steven. Yeah, I'll, I'll first off, you know, thanks for having me and, um, you know, you and Nick, like, taking on this new project challenge milestone in your lives you know to help the environment as well and support other people with great ideas so um, you know hats off to you guys as well and um, just yeah thanks for having me and whoever's listening thanks for listening and uh, 
if you want to know more, come and visit us at the cbinproject.com website. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Everyone, I, I guess everyone, yeah, you all have the power to to make a change as well. You know, everyone has the power to refuse single-use items and refuse the bag. And I guess um, you know, if everyone sort of started to take their own initiatives instead of waiting for other people to do it, you know, this is going to fast track of cleaner oceans as well. So. Yeah, maybe let's leave off with that, you know, that everyone has a responsibility as much as the corporate that makes the product, the consumer, the person that, you know, the end user has as much responsibility as anyone else to be a part of a solution. So if we all, you know, just did those little baby steps ourselves, this will fast track what we all want, which is cleaner oceans and a better value of life. Um, yeah. <laughs> Good place to end, mate. Thanks so much for your time. No worries. Thank you. Take the ocean out of the day